Well, welcome uh, to this session with Grace Point Church. I am thankful that you are here watching this from wherever you are at. And uh, we are thankful that we have this opportunity and the technology to bring a message for this week, this session, about God and his work and his wonderful care of his church. If you've been with us over the past six weeks, you know we've had a couple of other speakers in these sessions. The first five sessions were with Dr. Scott Harrell of Dallas Theological Seminary and through the auspices of DTS, as well as the Global Passion Institute, uh, we were uh, fortunate and blessed to have Dr. Harrell teach us on the Trinity of God. If you were with us through those five sessions, uh, you basically have had a short course in Trinitarianism or the Trinity of God, a fundamental of the Christian faith, the Orthodox Christian faith, and so we're thankful for Dr. Harrell. Also, Wes Crago brought us a message on the goodness of God. God is good all the time, all the time God is good. And so Wes, uh, one of our former elders, returned and gave us that message and we are thankful for his ability and his willingness to uh, teach us and remind us of some important things. Uh, we are glad you're here with us today. We are beginning a new series uh, for Grace Point Church and we wanna welcome you and welcome any guests who may be watching this uh, presentation also. So thank you for your prayers. Thank you for joining us this day. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for this day of life. Thank you for your word and pray that we would learn and grow and be challenged by it this day. Thank you for your Holy Spirit who guides us and leads us. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for saving us. And we praise you for your goodness to us. In Jesus' powerful name I pray, amen and amen. <clears throat> Uh, this year, I have not watched much professional football. I happened to catch part of a Seahawks game. And uh, one thing I've, uh, that I've always struck me as I watch uh, professional football or any football really is that uh, when the quarterback uh, makes a play or throws an interception in particular, he returns to the sidelines. And uh, the first thing they do is they get out uh, their tablets with the film on it and the pictures of what happened on the field. And most of the time he will get on a telephone. And I thought about that and I thought, I wonder if he's calling his mom or if he's ordering a pizza or exactly what. Of course, we all know he's talking to the coaches who are upstairs, the ones that are up high in the stadium who can see the whole field and they see exactly what's going on and they're telling the quarterback what perhaps he did wrong or what somebody else did wrong and which caused uh, him to throw an interception in, in the field at that time. Well, uh, why is he talking to that coach at all? You know, he, he lived through this thing down on the field. Maybe he should learn his own lessons, but there's two words that describe why he's talking to the coach on the telephone or by a headset and it is the words vantage point. The, the coach upstairs is, uh, has a whole view of the whole field and his vantage point is much better than anybody else down on the sidelines or even on the field. And so he's way above and he can see the weaknesses and the strengths of the opposing team. He can see his own team and what each, what each individual uh, player is doing and how they've performed on that play. And so he can inform the quarterback that next time you're out on the field, uh, do these things and do this thing and uh, watch out for uh, certain threats. Now, uh, you know, quarterbacks are very talented in the NFL and uh, the quarterback may say, 
oh, that'll never work. And yet the coach, uh, how does he respond? He says, well, trust me, from up here, I have a much better vantage point. I can see everything. I can see the whole field more than you can. And so as God looks down on our lives, God has a vantage point and he's communicating to us in very good ways, just like the coach is with the quarterback. And he gives us the big picture. And oftentimes, well, most of the time, our perspective is very limited and we need a bigger picture on our lives. The Apostle Paul, he's writing the little letter to the church at Philippi, the letter or the epistle to the Philippians. And if you have a copy of God's word, and I'd encourage you to have one, uh, to open it to the letter to the Philippian believers in the New Testament. And the Apostle Paul, he grasped God's big picture. He knew God had the vantage point. And so he was under threat. Remember the Apostle Paul was in prison in Rome. These are the prison epistles, by the way, Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon. Uh, if you were with us through the summer and then to early this fall, we looked at the, the, the letter to the Colossian church, which focused on the supremacy of Jesus Christ. But here the apostle Paul is writing to encourage and to thank the church at Philippi, but it is also a prison epistle. The apostle Paul is imprisoned in Rome and he's under arrest. He's chained to a, a Roman guard. Uh, he does not have his freedom and he's facing trial and a determination by the emperor. Of course, that would have been Nero at this time. And uh, the Apostle Paul uh, is full of joy. Yet as we read through this letter of Philippians, we see that he has great joy in uh, the people of God and in the fact that God is in control of all things. He sees his circumstances from the perspective of God. He sees them because God has revealed to him uh, these things. And he has a clear understanding of what's going on in his life, on the field of life, if you will, and the things that are happening to him. And, you know, all of us need that picture, that big picture, that vantage point from God's point of view upon our problems, our adversities, our difficulties. And that will give us a sense of joy and peace and rest. And we can truly say God is good all the time. Uh, Philippians will challenge us to rejoice in the midst of adversity because it gives us God's perspective on our lives. And so today we are going to begin a series out of the book and the letter to the Philippian believers. And uh, you were probably familiar with this little letter, and it's a letter about joy. It's a letter about uh, the concept and the characteristic and the commodity of joy in each one of our lives. In, in the Westminster Shorter Catechism, the first question is, is, what is the chief end of man? And if you were going through catechism, some of you probably did, you would answer, uh, man's chief end is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. What is the chief end of man? To enjoy God and enjoy him, or to, <clears throat> excuse me, to glorify God and enjoy him forever. Joy is a rare commodity, and it seems in our day and age, uh, especially recently and this year, uh, there's a lot of exhaustion, weariness, there's facing difficult, many of you are facing very difficult things, educating your children, uh, perhaps job loss, 
uh, seemingly impossible circumstances where we suffer really the theft of our joy. It's very easy not to be joyful. It's very easy to focus upon our adversities, our difficulties on COVID-19, on the political problems, the social problems of our country. And Paul gives us great encouragement in the midst of all of this. I don't have to really tell you in the days in which we're living that there's lots of setbacks, there's discouragements, there's uncertainty for sure. And so we can live a life of high anxiety uh, if we don't get the big picture, we get the vantage point. Uh, I was reading uh, this week about the concept of a paradox. Uh, you know, let me remind you what a paradox is according to the dictionary. A paradox is a seemingly observed or self-contradictory statement or proposition that when investigated or explained may prove to be well-founded or true. That's called a paradox. And scripture has some paradoxes or antinomies contained within it. But I was reading about uh, Jim Collins. He's an author. He wrote the book, Good to Great. And he tells a story about a Vietnam-era POW, prisoner of war, in, who was uh, incarcerated in Hanoi. And this is called the Stockdale Par Paradox. And you may have heard that or read that uh, work. But uh, at the time, James Stockdale was uh, the highest ranking naval officer that was a POW in North Vietnam. He was an aviator. He was shot down and spent seven and a half years in uh, a POW camp in the Vietnam War. And Jim Collins tells his story. And uh, Jim Collins writes that uh, the situation was so bleak and brutal, the uncertainty and the faith, uh, his fate uh, about what's going to happen to uh, Commander Stockdale, the brutality of his captors. In fact, James Stockdale, the first four years of his captivity, was brutalized and tortured uh, all that time. And how did he deal with it? How did James Stockdale deal with it? Uh, Collins interviewed, it was then Admiral James Stockdale, and uh, the question, he put that question directly to Stockdale, and he replied, Stockdale said, I never doubted not only that I would get out, but also that I would prevail in the end and turn the experience into a defining event of my life, which in retrospect, I would not trade. Collins followed up with another question. He said, well, what about those who did not make it out, who died in incarceration, in the prison? And Stockdale, without a moment's hesitation, said the optimists are the ones who didn't make it. You know, they were the ones who said, we're going to be out of here by Christmas. And Christmas would come and go, and then they weren't free. They'd say, then they'd say, we're going to be out by Easter, and Easter would come and go. Then it would be Thanksgiving and it would come and go. And Stockdale said, and then they would die of a broken heart, of crushed hopes of their optimism not being fulfilled. Uh, if the Kubler-Ross model is accurate, of course, the stages of grief. And I think about uh, our current situation. In one sense, uh, our lives have definitely changed. And uh, some of our freedoms seem to be uh, without, uh, without uh, expression in our lives right now. 
And I think of the stages of grief, according to Kubler-Ross model, as denial and anger and bargaining and so forth. There's like five or six different stages. And I think a lot of people are still in denial about the pandemic, and therefore they say it's not that bad or it's not really the thing. Uh, so they're in a denial. And then that moves to anger when things don't change. We're months and months into this pandemic, and the anger is very palpable in online and elsewhere. And of course, uh, expressing anger because we want to place blame on this pandemic. So we blame the government, we blame perhaps uh, the medical world or blame other people. Uh, and we see this uh, throughout our time. James Stockdale uh, goes on to say that this whole lesson he learned, the paradox of the fact that he had something more than just the optimism of being released from something in a month or two. Uh, he said, this is a very important lesson. You must never confuse faith that you will prevail in the end, which you can never afford to lose with the discipline to confront the most brutal facts of your current reality, whatever they may be. And that is the Stockdale paradox. His strength lied in the, fa lie in the fact that he did not create artificial deadlines, but he simply lived his values and his goals every day. So the Apostle Paul, he is imprisoned. And uh, in a sense, uh, we are a bit imprisoned too, perhaps in our experience today. Uh, but remember a few weeks, a number of weeks ago, I did a message on uh, our circumstances and whatever happens. Remember the Apostle Paul in chapter one, verse 12 said, uh, tells these Philippian believers, I want you to know brethren that my circumstances have turned out for a greater progress of the gospel. And we looked at the fact that the Apostle Paul tells us as we did the scope through Philippians that whatever happens, we are to stand firm in chapter 1, verse 27. Whatever happens, press on in the faith, chapter 3, verse 12. And whatever happens, rejoice, chapter 4, verse 4, and many other places in that. And so these prison epistles are instructive for us today because they give us God's vantage point on our lives and our adversity and the, the obstructions that we seem to face here. So as we turn to this letter to the Philippians, today it'll just be an introduction, kind of an overview, and then in the following sessions we will start to uh, unpack this letter, and hopefully each one of us will grow in Christ because of it. And the main theme of the letter to the Philippians is the, how to live the Christian life. Living the Christian life is the main theme here. Remember, Colossians was about the supremacy of Christ. And here in Philippians, we take that knowledge of the supremacy and sovereignty of the Lord Jesus Christ, and we live it out. And so the Apostle Paul is helping us to live it out in these, in these letters uh, during his time in imprisonment. If you want the historical background, you can go to Acts chapter 16, verses 6 through 40 and read about the planting of the church at Philippi through the meeting of the women down by the river where the Apostle Paul met them there. And through that meeting and Lydia uh, and through her family, they, this church was planted in, in the city of Philippi. The city of Philippi uh, was a Roman city and uh, so they were <clears throat> given many rights by Rome and they'd been uh, transmigrated, if you will, from other parts of the empire. And so they were living there and the Apostle Paul uh, planted this, this church there, so he's very familiar with it. It was close to his heart. 
And so as we approach the letter to the Philippian church, we recognize that life is full of many adversities and afflictions. And the fact is that they can rob us of joy. These things can just rip the joy out of our lives because uh, we feel the adversities, the, the afflictions of day-to-day -day life. I was thinking about that, and thankfully, uh, in my time, I, I've never experienced to some level of uh, people stealing my material possessions. Uh, one time in Dallas, someone stole a pocket watch and a ring that my grandfather had given me, and uh, th that was a severe loss, and anybody who has experienced theft in their lives of their material possessions know how violated you feel and uh, how this is just, uh, the trust is uh, taken away from you. And so uh, a greater thing than material possessions is our own internal joy, our own aspect of intrinsic belonging to the Lord Jesus Christ. And there are at least four areas, I think, that can uh, rob us of joy. And uh, these are afflictions and adversities that come our way. And the uh, first one is circumstances in our lives. And we talked a bit about that some time ago. But have you really considered how few of your circumstances you were actually in control of? Uh, sometimes I sit back and take an inventory of what is it in my life that I actually control in my circumstances. And it gets down to very few things, very few things. And... Uh, if, a person, if you're a person whose happiness depends upon ideal circumstances in your life, you will probably be miserable most of the time. And that's not a good place to live. Uh, the, the, the poet Byron said, men are the sport of circumstances. And that certainly seems to be true. The second thing that can rob us of joy are other people, other people in our lives. Uh, Paul Meyer, uh, who was a... Uh, a counselor in Dallas in his book, he wrote a book called Don't Let the Jerks Get the Best of You. And he then defines jerks who are those who are selfish, which pretty much defines all of us, doesn't it? What they do and say can rob us of joy. Uh, we cannot be salt and light as Christians in this world without contact with other people. Uh, some uh, try to get away from other people who tend to rob them of joy. Uh, but remember that uh, one president said you can please some of the people all of the time and all of the people some of the time, but not all of the people all of the time. And so if you're focused on pleasing others, you're going to be disappointed. So circumstances, people, the third joy robber in our life are possessions in our life, possessions in our life. And I think of, you know, the blessing of our possessions in life and yet they can become kind of a slave driver in our lives too. I look around our own little uh, town here and it almost looks like mini storage village. Uh, and it seems to be that everybody has more possessions than the size of their, their, their houses and therefore they have to rent storage for them. And uh, I remember watching uh, one uh, TV news documentary and the newsmen were walking down the waterfront in the Riviera, the French Riviera, where all of the big billionaires' lots were backed up, or yachts, excuse me, yachts, uh, big boats backed up uh, to uh, the walking path by there, the, the, the walk. And they showed these people sitting in the backs of these yachts, and they were all unhappy, looked desperately unhappy. Uh, 
as they looked out upon the masses walking by. So the things and the quest for things uh, fill our lives and can certainly rob us of joy. Remember, uh, Jesus said in Luke 12, a man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. A man's life does not consist of the abundance of his possessions. So they can rob us of joy. The fourth thing is anxiety, of course. Worry is the worst thief of all. Worry is a small trickle of fear that meanders through our mind until it cuts a channel into which all of our other thoughts are drained. It devours up our thought life and robs us of joy when we worry about what we did yesterday or are anxious about what is coming tomorrow. Oliver Wendell Holmes once said, I might have entered the ministry if certain clergymen I knew had not looked and acted so much like undertakers. Where is the joy in the Christian life, in other words? Robert Louis Stevenson once entered in his diary as if he was recording an extraordinary phenomena. Quote, I have been to church today and I am not depressed. Boy, that's a sad commentary on what it means to be a Christian. So how do we stop these uh, joy robbers, the adversity, the afflictions that tend to rob us from joy. Well, the background of Philippians uh, and this, the, the, Paul's letter uh, is the answer to that. You know, the words joy, rejoicing, gladness occur some 19 times in these four short pages. And uh, also, the Apostle Paul references our minds, our thinking, our remembrance, some, what is it, 16, 17 times in this. That is the key to joy is where we start to think about life and our current situation, our circumstances, people, possessions, anxiety. And so life's afflictions can rob us of joy. So what is the antidote? What can we do to combat this drain on ourselves of our joy? God's antidote for joyless living. And this is the overview of the letter to the Philippians. In chapter 1, the Apostle Paul talks about having a single mind. In other words, being single-minded about Jesus Christ. Uh, James, in, chap in James chapter 1, verse 8, says, A double-minded man is unstable in all of his ways. And we are called and warned about being double-minded. And the Apostle Paul in chapter 1, verse 21 here says, For me to live as Christ and to die as gain. That is single-mindedness. And we will see in chapter 1 the fellowship of the gospel, the furtherance of the good news of Jesus Christ, and the faith uh, of the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ. So a single mind in Philippians chapter 1. Philippians chapter 2 he talks about others, and he talks about having a submissive mind, not only a mind focused on Christ, the single mind, but a submissive mind to Christ. In Philippians 2, verses 3 through 5, he encourages and exhorts us, do nothing from selfishness or empty conceit, but with humility of mind, let each one of you regard each other as more important than himself. I think that one passage would be transformative for every believer for every church, if we would take it seriously. Have this attitude in ourselves that was in Jesus Christ, the ultimate model of submission. So we will see in chapter two, the pattern of submissive mind, and that is Jesus Christ. The power of the submissive mind for you and for, for myself is for it is God who is at work in us. God is faithfully working in us. And then the proof, he uses himself. And he uses Timothy and Epaphroditus, probably the pastor, 
from the church at Philippi who came to visit him and to encourage him. So the pattern, the power, and the proof of a submissive mind in chapter two. In chapter three, we're gonna see not only is there, we need a single mind, a submissive mind, but in chapter three, a spiritual mind, a spiritual mind. Chapter three, verse 20, for our citizenship is in heaven, from which also we eagerly wait for a savior, the Lord Jesus Christ. What a great verse to think of during this election season in these few weeks before the election that uh, we need to have a reminder of having a spiritual mind and recognize that our citizenship is ultimately in heaven with the Lord Jesus Christ. And in chapter three, the man with the spiritual mind will count, he will press on, he will look above, above. And in fact, one writer said that, that that chapter describes an accountant with the right values, an athlete with the right vigor, and an alien with the right vision. And so having this <clears throat> spiritual mind. And then fourthly, in, in Ephesians chapter four, a secure mind, a secure mind. In chapter four, verse seven, the apostle Paul tells us, and the peace of God, which surpasses all comprehension, shall guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. He gives us these spiritual resources which we can avail ourselves to. God's peace, God's power, God's provision there in chapter four. So as we introduce this letter to the Philippians, I'd encourage you to read through it. It's very short. Read through it every day and uh, you will soon start to garner and gather the Apostle Paul's argument here. But remember four significant principles, four significant principles. First of all, for living joy, I need the best model to know how to live with joy, and that is Jesus Christ, chapter one, verse 21. Second, for serving joy, when I serve others, I need the right attitude, the attitude like Christ's in chapter two, verse five. Thirdly, for sharing a life of joy, I need an internal goal, the upward call of God in Jesus Christ, chapter three, verse 14. Remember this life, this world is not all there is. We have a future and a hope as believers in Jesus Christ. And fourth, for resting joy, I need God's peace, which comes through uh, laying our needs before Christ, chapter four, verses six through seven. So, I have a question for you is where do you live? Where do you live? No, not your physical address, but where do your thoughts travel when you have a free moment? Where do your thoughts travel? What do you use your mind for? Do they pack up and head for the past uh, or do they head into the unknown future with its anxious thoughts? Let me encourage you to step away from the shame and guilt of the past and remove yourself from the fear and worry of the future and focus your attention on the joy in the Lord who lives in us now. Remember the, the psalmist's words in Psalm 16, in thy presence is fullness of joy. In thy right hand, there are pleasures forever. Amen and amen. Lord Jesus, thank you for the day and thank you for this letter to the church at Philippi. Thank you that you brought, us, brought it to us in our own heart language that we can read it, study it, and your Holy Spirit gives us understanding. I thank you for each one viewing this session. Pray for their special needs, Lord, and you know those things and you know where each person is at and what is needed in their lives. And we look to you for your faithfulness, for your power, for your strength, 
And thank you, Lord, that you give us joy in Jesus Christ, no matter what our circumstances are, for it's in his name. We pray amen and amen. Go in God's grace. Have a great week.